Rachel Zoffness, welcome back to the show. Hello, sir. You've been here before, but I'm going to tell my audience how much I love you Aww. and why. Aww. Because you are a pain and health psychologist, true. assistant, uh, or a clinical assistant professor at UCSF. Also true. You also teach pain management and other strategies at Dartmouth and Stanford. I'm a nerd. You're a big pain and psychology nerd. Nerd. And what we're going to talk about today mm. is something that nerds need to know about all everybody needs to know about, which is this pediatric mental health crisis yeah. that the media is calling it. And often I would say, well, the media calls all kinds of things crisis, you yeah. know, crises, but this is actually legit. So we're going to talk about, okay, how do you recognize like things like anxiety, suicidal uh, ideation in kids? Because it's different than adults. They're not apparently just little adults. They're not little adults. Yeah. And what do we do about it? Because the pandemic has made everything an order of magnitude worse. Fair to say? Fair to say. All right. First of all, is this mental health crisis real? Talk to me about this. Uh, yes, it is absolutely real. Um, we know that uh, inpatient hospitalizations for kids were up in 2020. I believe it was 31% increase in pediatric inpatient hospitalizations. And they were already they were already not doing great prior to pandemic. We are definitely going to talk about that. And then this year, which is even more fascinating in my mind, at the beginning of 2021, there was a 51% increase in inpatient hospitalizations and suicide attempts for kids ages 12 to 17. And the majority of those were girls. Uh -huh. so there's so many things about that that are interesting to me, but I do want to quickly say what an inpatient hospitalization means. Yeah. Tell me about this for kids, for kids, especially for kids. So when I see, I see, you know, patients of all ages in my office, kids, teens, and adults, but with teenagers, um, I want to go big picture and then I'll go, I'll dive in. This is yeah, like our yeah. normal dance here. Yeah, yeah. So, so big picture, it's actually normal for teenagers and by the way, adults too, to have suicidal thoughts. And we call that suicidal ideation. It, believe it or not, at some point in a teenager's life and in an adult's life, you might think to yourself, man, I don't want to be here anymore. It might be easier to be dead. It's not unusual. In fact, it's human to have that thought at some point in your life. I'm going to I'm going to make this more yes go. No, so so destigmatizing the idea that we all have yeah, these thoughts. Exactly. Because I've had those thoughts. Who everyone yeah, who has hasn't, had, right? That's right. When yeah. things get really bad or really hard and when you're a teenager, the hard the difficulty of everything is amplified times a million. So when the guy you like doesn't like you back and you know, you're get, you're not getting good grades and your parents are fighting or whatever, it is actually common to have, to think thoughts like that. When believe it or not, Darth yes. Vader told Luke, yeah. "I'm your dad." Yeah. If I could have gotten in Luke's head, he's like, "You know what? Better just go I'm ahead, done. lightsaber I'm me. Done. I'm out." Yeah. <laughs> right. Good. I like how Too you much. brought Darth Vader into the conversation about children's it's, suicidality. It is our modern mythology. <laughs> in the absence of an organized religion, many people self-identify as Jedi now. On act, this is actually true. I did not know that. Yes. Anyway, so <laughs> I love the, I love the tangent. That was that was one of my favorite tangents. People self-identify as Jedi. They do. Like ten percent of Americans, when surveyed on their religious belief, will say something like Jedi, which tells you we're not. Percent of Americans. We're, we're looking less for God than we are for an a mythology a that belonging. explains the human condition, a, oh, a, a wow. tribal belonging, a sense of empowerment, a sense of connection to something bigger than us. And what's bigger than the Force? Nothing's bigger than the Force. I promise we're going to get back to the to the teen the teen suicide thing, but does the ten percent of America that identify as Jedi all watch you? I think 
<laughs> I think like a hundred percent of the ten percent are Z Dog fans. I, I feel like I'm being nerd shamed in some way by no, a fellow nerd. Totally not. No, I love it. I actually I think it's actually delightful and wonderful. Anyway, you're you're a fearless leader of Jedi. I um Okay, I'm gonna go I back. I may to be it. Sith. I may be a little more Sith, That's but terrifying. it's okay. Yes. Okay, let's go back to the kids. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, so suicidal ideation being not uncommon yes. now. Right. And and there's more. So uh, suicidal ideation is just thinking thoughts like, I don't want to be here anymore. It would be easier to be dead. My life is miserable and, you know, stuff like that. Um, but there's a step beyond that when we get worried about teenagers. And I'm going to stick with teenagers since that's who we're talking about. This 12 to 17 age range, 51% spike in inpatient hospitalizations. Remarkable. It's remarkable. Yeah. So. So I do not hospitalize or call 911 when I have a kid tell me that they're thinking those thoughts. Okay. What's What flips me to the next level is when a kid has intent, actual intent to harm themselves, and they have a plan. Plan and intent is the real red flag moment where a clinician is like, I have to do something to help this child. So so intent is I actually have an intent. I'm not just thinking about it. I actually have an intent to go home and kill myself. Uh, trigger warning for everybody that is triggering of course yeah and um and the plan and they'll tell you this yes yeah sometimes if you're lucky yeah and then the plan is like i actually have a plan like i'm going to use whatever tool whatever Mm. object to do it so when they have intent and plan then we do that thing where we 5150 them which you take the kid to the hospital in california right yeah in california you take them to the emergency department and they have a safety assessment and we decide whether or not they can go back home with a safety plan, or they need to be hospitalized. Mm. So the kid, this 51% increase says that it's not just that the kids were thinking about it. It's that it somehow was serious enough that there was plan and intent or an actual attempt. And so they were hospitalized. And we know this because they got hospitalized. Exactly. Correct. Or, you know, in Nevada, we call it L2K. Here it's 5150. Got Everyone's it. got it. So that's really frightening, actually. Yeah. And- the fact that it is – so it's not just ideation. Like you said, because all of us, you know, man, I'll tell you, this guy's talking to me. I want to die. You know, that that's one thing. Yeah. You're saying intent and plan. And then the question is this female predilection with young women. And so when Jonathan Haidt wrote the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, he talked quite a bit about the rise in mental illness. This was pre-pandemic in young girls. And the theory was perhaps that girls show relational aggression – in terms of reputational aggression and social media has been the potentiator to allow that. Whereas boys punch each other and they're more physically aggressive. There's crossover, of course, but the idea that young girls, there's there's body image issues, there's social reputation and the platforms like Instagram, which by the way, Facebook knew was poisonous to young girls and continue. So it's disgusting. Yeah. And I've said this before. If I could leave Instagram and Facebook, yeah. I would. Yeah. I've got half a million so people on Instagram fu- yeah. and 2.5 million on Facebook. If I leave, I lose the chance to influence to have an impact. The, the conversation. So I'm stuck on those platforms. That, that doesn't mean I have to speak Support nice them. of them no, or totally. not try to criticize them. No. So all, all that being said, that those platforms then potentiate um, worse for girls. That's right. Now, is that your experience? What's your take on this? I- I've thought about this a lot, actually, and I'm not sure there's a clear answer. Mm. One of the things I think about a lot is that in our culture, 
girls are socialized to talk about their emotions more and not just talk about their emotions more openly, but to notice, to dial in and look inside. Like dudes are not necessarily encouraged to sit down and think about how they're feeling today and to like have a good list of their emotion words. And I think with girls, we do a better job of emotion education. I'm not saying that's the full spectrum of what's happening, but there's a couple parts to this. One is I think girls, teenage girls, are more likely to say to their friends and their parents, hey, I'm not okay. And by the way, no one has been okay during the last year and a half of this pandemic nightmare, right? And we'll, we're going to get into why it's been particularly bad for, for kids and teenagers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, it strikes me that teenage girls might be more dialed in to, hey, I'm not okay, and also more likely to say it without stigma. Like with guys, there's a lot of stigma around saying like, I'm not okay, or I'm depressed, or I'm feeling overwhelmed. But with girls, I think there's less. So, so I think there's this combination of girls tuning in and knowing their own emotions, being able to express it to their friends and family without stigma or as much stigma. Mm. And, then, and then the third piece of this is like parents are at home with their kids now for a year and a half. So they're they're watching more, they're hearing more, they're seeing more. Kids aren't away at school all day. Mm. So there's more attention on how kids are doing. Oh, that's really interesting. So could so what you're saying is in in a way, another way of looking at it is that you have then a a little bit of a bias in that since girls are more open with this discussion, they might be more likely to be hospitalized, say, because they're making you aware of their inner state whereas but then are we seeing then more executed suicides in boys or what's going on? So check this out. So there was an increase in boys too. They Their increased hospitalization was only 4% compared to, I think it was 51% among girls. Wow. Right. But rates of completed suicide went down. Overall in everybody or? In, in, in this age group, the 12 to 17 age group, rates of completed suicide went down. What? Yeah. And in the age group immediately higher, it was like... 17 or 18 to 24, it stayed the same rates of completed suicide. I know I wanted to talk about this with you because I I don't actually. So just to say, I don't actually know why rates are higher than girls. I'm just thinking aloud, like something is happening there. There is a gender difference and I don't, I don't know what it is, but but also it's interesting to say while there was a 51% spike among girls, teenage girls, and a 4% spike among teenage boys, completed suicides are lower. Is it because the parents have been around to watch this, to hospitalize them, to get help? Mm. Maybe, maybe, maybe. So could there also be then even more validity to this idea that we need to destigmatize this conversation? Oh my God. Again, it, it is human to have thoughts about not wanting to be on the planet anymore. And if you think about what's happening right now, like in the last few years, like the amount of stress on kids and teens is beyond what we should expect of them. That is my humble opinion. Like if you think about all the stressors, like at that age between 12 and 17, if you think about what's happening, I don't know how many people remember being in middle school. I do. It's traumatizing. (laughs) Like the catecholamines have seared it into my memory. Nobody has forgotten. It's such an intensely uncomfortable an awkward and miserable time of life for most, not all, mm. but for most people. It's like the age where you're trying to figure out your identity. Mm. Like you're suddenly self-aware and you're trying to individuate, which is a word I always teach to the parents of the kids who come see me. Mm. And individuate is that age of life where you're like, oh, I'm trying to figure out who I am 
and where my parents end and I begin. Ah. So it's that thing that teenagers do that you will surely go through soon if you aren't already, which is like, <sighs> I love you. I need you. Take me everywhere. Buy me clothes. F- fill the fridge. Cook me dinner. But do not talk to me in public and do not come yep. in my room and drop yep. me off at the corner. I'm there now <laughs> with my 13-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's individuating. So it's like, I love you and I need you, but like, stay the F away from me. Wow. Which is in itself stressful. And then you add on to that this sociopolitical climate of like divisive politics Mm. and um, racism and injustice and the horror of that. And you add on to that wildfires, especially here in California and climate change. And it's like the – And and kids seem to stress more about this stuff than adults because adults are like yeah climate change that they've been talking about that since the 70s wildfires yeah stuff burns but kids are like the world is on fire it's getting hotter by the time i'm 30 this place is going to be unlivable i mean this is stressful for kids they get existential anxiety a hundred percent yes existential anxiety and it's worse also the kids who come into my office say things like y'all effed it up for us oh they're mad so They're devastated. They're like, what have you done to this planet that you're asking me to now inhabit? (laughs) It's on fire. And not for nothing, I will say that I think the wildfires and the climate crisis are triggering massive amounts of anxiety in adults, too. Like, it's really the last few years here. In Cali, you can't breathe. Like, the air turns toxic. The sun turns blood red. The sky turns purple. You're like, oh, the apocalypse has actually arrived. You know, you sound just like um, Egon when he's talking uh, in Ghostbusters. He's like, (laughs) according to Toby. And spirit guide, the sun turns red and the and the blood of the wildfires runs cold. It's like we're gonna have to what does that have to do with Slimer? I love that you just quoted I used to watch that movie obsessively as a child. It's one of the greats. I still remember seeing it in the theater in the eighties. And this this was an interesting little side note. We my mom took us, and my mom never goes to the movies, but for some reason she decided to take us instead of dad, who normally takes us to Indiana Jones and all this stuff and back then. So we show up, but we showed up early. And so we caught the ending of the first run of the thing. And my mom didn't know any better. So she's like, oh, well, we just saw the end of it. And then it just started over and we saw the beginning. I'm like, well, I know how this thing ends. Oh, no. And the whole time I was trying to work back in my mind, how do they get to a giant marshmallow man? <laughs> like, What is going on? No, there's no logic there. Yeah, it was great. It was actually a good intellectual exercise at age, whatever, 12. Yeah. Yeah. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about. No, I like marshmallows and Ghostbusters. So so let me see if I remember what we were talking about. Oh, existential angst around external realities and the social contagion of the discussions around it and the media and social media and the divisiveness of it all. They're they're the first generations that's fully digitally online, have a screen in front of them from day one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I think big picture, what we're trying to talk about is like, what are the drivers of this pediatric mental health crisis, which is absolutely real and that we're seeing. So there's a lot of it's additive. As we Mm. all know, stress and anxiety are additive. Um, I wish we could destigmatize it because it seems to me that it's actually human and normal to be stressed out and anxiety anxious, particularly in this time of life. Like this is a really difficult time of life the last couple of years. And we haven't even talked about COVID yet. So, Mm. so absolutely there's a pediatric mental health crisis. Absolutely. Kids are suffering. I, I work a lot with teenagers and that age group is suffering just as much as everybody else. And clearly even a little bit more so given the spike that we're seeing in suicide attempts Right. And, and, and do you think that being home with the parents has made it worse? Or do you think it's another opportunity, again, that we're seeing less 
completed suicide? Like what's going on in your, in your experience? Right. Yeah. So what we do know, you know, all this data has been coming in from the last year and a half. And what we do know is that this is going to surprise nobody. There's a lot of unhealthy family systems out there. Mm. Um, so there are a lot of families in which there's physical abuse and emotional abuse and sexual abuse and mm. domestic violence. And there's parents that have toxic relationships with each other. Um, there's also neglect. There's like, there's, um, there's a lot of things happening at home that we would say are uh, unhealthy environments for kids. Mm. So usually what happens when it's not a pandemic is you lift the kid out of their toxic home environment and they scoot off to school mm. where they are with a teacher and they're in a learning environment and they're with healthy peers and they're seeing other models of other social interactions that are maybe healthier, you know, and they're mm. eating meals out of the home. So, you know, home environments are always impacting children, but when they're spending the bulk of the day somewhere else, you know, they can cope. They can cope. They're learning coping. They have other, they have a support network. They have distractions. They, um, but during the pandemic, kids who are living in homes that already had some um, underlying unhealthy issues, it just amplified at times a million. So in a way, this idea of individuating is short, short, short circuit or sabotaged by what we've done socially by closing schools, say, putting kids at home in, in um, a lockdown situation, well, whatever the merits and demerits of it as a, as a COVID containment policy, we, we won't get into that because right. that's a whole nother thing. But by, by keeping them, say, in a dysfunctional situation versus maybe interrupting this individuation process, which school helps potentiate because now you have peers versus, you know, and, and, and I'm curious how much of this has to do with socioeconomic status because it seems like we preferentially harm people with low socioeconomic status, kids with low socioeconomic status because the rich kids, they have a big enough house. They can go hide oh, in this yeah. room and this wing of the house oh, with yeah. their Zoom and all that, but oh, the, yeah. the, the other kids can't. Nope, you're all on, on top of each other. And and like while we're talking about this, we were talking about the hierarchy of needs. There's this guy in psychology, Maslow. That guy. And he came up with this hierarchy of needs. Will you tell everyone about Maslow, the hierarchy I, of needs? I love Maslow. I'll just say this. You yeah. can tell us. But, no, I, but Maslow was very awake. So he was actually very spiritually realized. And one of his whole things was you, you, you get these needs met so that you can transcend to the true actualization of the self. And right. so I was very fascinated by Maslow. A lot of nurses learn about Maslow's hierarchy. So please tell us, tell us about it. So the basic gist is this, before you can self-actualize and By the way, sorry, this, like, sorry, one thing. Yeah, go. Maslow's spirit guide. Doesn't that sound like something that should be in Ghostbusters? Yes. Like Egon would say, uh, yeah, Maslow's spirit guide says that this is a class three free roaming vapor. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, tell us about Maslow. Oh, I love that. Basically, Maslow said that if you imagine there's like a pyramid or a hierarchy of human needs and like at the top is self-actualization, there's this big foundational piece that needs to be met first before you can do any like serious psychological or spiritual work. And at the very base of human needs is like safety and shelter and food and stability. Like you need just those basic things. Mm -hmm. And what happened during COVID is a lot of that was lost for a lot of people. And you're talking about socioeconomic status. So during COVID, people lost their homes mm -hmm. and they lost their jobs. And food insecurity became a major issue for a lot of people during COVID also. So we're talking about pediatric mental health. Like if you're if you don't have 
your home anymore, like you have an unstable living environment and you don't know where you're going to be sleeping tomorrow night, or you're not sure where your next few meals are coming from, you bet your ass you're going to be more anxious, more depressed and more suicidal. Like, but, but you can't even work on that stuff until your most basic, like we have to know, we have to make sure that you have a safe home environment, a place to sleep. We have to make sure that you're getting three meals before we can talk about, well, maybe you need cognitive behavioral therapy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. It's like, we have to go so when we talk about COVID and the pediatric mental health crisis, we have to look at all of those kids who are suffering with the most basic needs not being met. You know, um, man, that's such an important thing. And, and as a as policymakers, I think there's been failure at every level to keep kids uh, actually safe from that kind of thing. We talk about this culture of safetyism where, oh, a two-year-old should wear a mask and we should vaccinate every kid five to 11. And all that may be true. Again, we have to see the data on that, but but we don't hardly have the conversation about the food insecurity, the home domestic violence, these cycles of, because poverty generates, instability generates these uh, determinants that then vibrate back in a feedback loop. And then you have, you know, again, the dysfunctional relationship or the, the single parent who's trying to do everything. And it, 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 it we, those are the root causes then of a ton of dysfunction that then self-perpetuates. Yep. But we don't, we don't address root cause. We go, well, here's a $700 check, stay home and so on. And it's been very destabilizing. Right. But, but so then the question becomes, you know, and I'll just tell a quick story. So, and I have to be careful not to give this kid away because my daughter's in school. So they, they came from a, when we were in Vegas, we had them in a private school that was near our house. Everybody was a, you know, casino mogul's son and this and that. And so they only knew kids who had ridiculous levels of affluence and, but it was fine. They got good education, whatever. They came here, we put them in the public school and the public school here, the first comments of these kids were, we like this a lot better because there's all types of kids here. And one of the, one of the, um, Interesting stories is there was this kid who was really acting up and was not, you know, doing well in school and was causing like behave had behavioral stuff. And my daughter figured out that, oh, this kid has a terrible home life. Like the the there's a bunch of siblings, mother sick, like all this stuff going on, and this kid is being asked to be the father in the house. And she told me, she goes, Of course he's going to behave this way. Like, what would I do? Like, She's so smart. I have everything. I'm like, yeah, well, it's a chip off the old mom Obviously. is what it is. It's a chip off mom. Yeah. Uh, so th- she's seeing it in her own school and we're in a relatively affluent area. Yeah. So I can't imagine what it's like in a, say, you know, in parts of San Francisco where schools have been closed forever and so on. Right. Now, right. Uh, by the way, is your practice socioeconomically, is it all over? It is. I have a sliding scale where I see families who can't afford treatment for like 40 bucks. And I feel really good about that. That's awesome. Yeah. Like insurance doesn't reimburse what I do. So I mostly see people with chronic pain Mm. and insurance should cover cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain, but it doesn't. Why? Because the system is broken and pain medicine is broken. And for some reason, insurance companies will reimburse procedures all day long, like 17 back surgeries, right? even when we know that they're not going to be effective right. and medications all day long, right. including medications that we know are deleterious and not actually helpful, right. but they will not reimburse things like cognitive behavioral therapy. So I have a sliding scale so that I can get in all of those families. Um, I have like a certain number of spots and they're always full 
you know, wow. but, but I keep them full and I feel good about it. Well, you know, so, and this ties right into this question of how do kids manifest physically? How, how do they show some of these signs that they're internally having struggle? Right. Okay. So um, something that I love talking about, because you've heard me talk about it before, is this idea that emotions don't just live in your head. Emotions also come out in your body. And there's a word for that in medicine. And the word is somatic. Mm. But it's become a bad word in medicine. Like when someone's somaticizing, it's almost like it's the, psychological or they're making it up. They're malingering. Or, yeah. Right. Yeah. Will you tell people what malingering means? So malingering means you're intentionally faking illness to get second, some kind of gain. Right. Like to get out of get work. Get out of work, or get like, FMLA, whatever it is. Right. Right. Yeah. right. right. So the real fascinating part of that is um, emotions are always physical. If you think about what an emotion is, it's like neurotransmitters and hormones and changes in muscle tension. And there's physiological changes with every emotion. And, and we all know that. So if you've ever been stressed out before, like giving a talk or a presentation and you got butterflies in your stomach, dry mouth, sweaty palms, racing heart, those are emotions manifesting physically. That's how stress and anxiety manifests in some people. Mm. For other people, they have they vomit or they have diarrhea or they have stomach aches when they get really anxious or stressed out. Headaches. Um, Headaches are really common, mm. right? There, there's because there's changes in blood flow mm. and chain, right? Physical. It's all one pressure. system. One system. Because the brain is connected to the body 100 percent of the time. <laughs> there is never a time your brain is not connected to your body. So emotions are physical, and believe it or not, thoughts are physical too. So they they do these studies where they show if you sit down in a chair and you ask someone to think really stressful thoughts, and you hook hook them up to a machine that measures muscle tension and skin temperature and all these other physiological things, you will see just thinking scary or anxious thoughts will make your skin temperature plummet. Your hands and feet get cold when you're stressed, believe it or not. Your heart rate will start racing just with a thought. Um, muscle tension, your muscles will get tighter. So, And that's just thoughts. So we have this belief in Western medicine that thoughts are just in your head and like emotions are just in your head. And it's pathologized when you have physiological responses to thoughts and emotions, which is so weird to me mm. because everyone and I mean everyone trained in medicine, knows that the brain is connected to the body 100% of the time. So to your point, there is a somatic or physical component all the time with stress and anxiety, all the time with depression, and all the time with trauma. And if you go down the rabbit hole and read the literature and read the books, there's like a million out there, you will see, and probably everyone listening knows, that when you are depressed, your body might feel heavy. Or when you are depressed, salt water might leak from your eyes. Mm. Isn't that fascinating? That is a physiological somatic expression of an emotion. So, so um, during this pandemic, what I've seen both in kids and adults, is a massive spike in chronic pain, mm, which is not that's surprising either. really interesting. It's out there in the literature. It's I, like, it's a known I, entity. I mean, so the thing is, okay, you you and I are simpatico on this. Like, yeah. I mean, this is something that I feel is a, one of our great national misunderstandings in the scientific world that we, even the distinction between physical, somatic, mental, thought, emotion, there's not really, those are artificial thought constructed distinctions. Yeah. It's all one thing. Yeah. It's all experience, really. You could even say, if you wanna be spooky, you could say it's all consciousness. Like it's all 
how we experience the world. And so why do we subdivide it and chop it up and stigmatize bits? Like, oh, the physical is real, but the mental is not real. I don't, I mean, what a great question that is. I mean, in Western medicine, I feel like we've tried to um, chop everything up in the, into these little component parts for the sake of convenience, convenience but yeah. that doesn't actually help patients. Like right. it doesn't help you and me. Maybe it helps medicine be more organized, but in Western medicine, we have this false and artificial divide, especially in the world of pain, which is where I live, which is like either you have physical pain and you see a physician or you have emotional pain and you see a psychologist. But what neuroscience tells us is that pain, this thing we call physical pain is filtered through the brain's limbic system, which is your emotion center, center. 100% of the time. So no matter what pain you're talking about, like your broken ankle or the bad back you've had for 20 years, those signals coming from your body filter through your brain's limbic system, your emotion center, before they become this experience we call pain. Mm. So so pain is always physical and emotional, but we don't treat it that way. So we train patients to go see 42 physicians and to take 100 medications before we even look at well, are there cognitive and emotional and behavioral components to your pain? And the answer is yeah, 100% of the time the answer is yes, but we don't address the context or the emotions or the thoughts or the, yes. Yeah, and uh, you throw on top of this our own self-deception. So how many of your patients deny that they have any emotional or cognitive issues and it's all, no, there's a physical problem here. You need to solve it. I don't know why I'm seeing you. Always. Yeah. The stigma is really intense. Yeah. People always say like, well, my pain is real. It's not all in my head. Why am I seeing a psychologist for a physical problem? Right, right, right. But it's because we don't explain pain and we don't teach pain. We don't we don't teach pain to physicians like 96 percent of medical schools in the United States and Canada have zero dedicated compulsory pain education. So like and psychology programs have even less like we do not teach pain to healthcare providers. So if we're not teaching providers that pain is a thing that's actually constructed by the brain and the limbic system, then surely patients, people living with pain are not going to know. We signal to them. Yeah. We signal to them. Right. We do. We go, right. Oh, you know, the, I think this is a mental issue. You yeah, should go right, see right, a psychologist. Right, and, right, yeah, it's, right. it's, it's crazy. You've said it before. It's a biopsychosocial continuum, the pain. Everything Correct. is Correct. actually. So with kids then, do you see, say, things like more typically like uh, abdominal pain, headache? I'm curious if you see rashes. Yeah. So um, headaches and stomach aches are the number one sign of stress and anxiety in kids. Mm. I'm actually going to say that again because it's so important. Please. Headaches and stomach aches are the number one sign of stress and anxiety in say kids. Say it a third time, but I'll beatbox behind you this time, okay? <laughs> <laughs> No, I can't. Can't I do just it. Can't do it. Won't won't do it. Is probably more. By the way, when 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 I'm Rachel not a rapper, when, I can't. When Rachel showed up today, we were talking about irony, and I said I don't even know how to define irony, and she goes, "Oh, I know how. What it's not. It's not rain on your wedding day." And I said, "Oh, Alanis Morissette." And then I made a quick connection. It's not a you, free ride when you've already paid. That's right. Or good advice when what was, the, was uh, when you just. That you just didn't take. That you just didn't take. Yeah. But who would have thought it figures? And it's not 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. That's just like your <laughs> That's shit not irony. Out of luck. That's just bad luck. Total. That's just bad a day. bummer. Bad day. But then I said, you kind of remind me of a Alanis Morissette that isn't Canadian. Thank you. And um, and I think it's beautiful. I love her music. I do. Are we going to. When I was angsty, like in grad school, I listened that's, to her. Yeah, a lot. It's, it totally. You have to say things like, I celebrate her entire collection. That's the correct. <laughs> 
<laughs> I saw that in office space. Michael Bolton, you like Michael Bolton, right? He's like, oh, I, I, I celebrate his entire collection. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll file that away and use that in the future. It's a, yeah. I Thank actually you. stole something from that uh, movie. He says, well, if you hate Michael, the guy's name was Michael Bolton. I remember. Yeah. And he's like, well, God, why don't you change your name? And he goes, why should I change my name? He's the one who sucks. <laughs> Nice. Well yeah. done. Offending so anytime I've, anyone said, why don't you just do this? I'm like, why should I do this? They're the ones who suck. Doesn't really help. It's not very productive. So this, the headaches and stomach aches. Yeah. Because I think a lot of parents to go along with the collective, I'm going to call it a delusion. It's, it's, that's a strong word. There's a collective delusion. That there's physically something wrong with my child and you need to solve this doctor because it can't possibly be the things that you're implying like anxiety, stress, emotional pain, yeah, right. uh, this kind of thing. So here's the thing. Mm. Yes, there's something physically wrong. Nobody is denying that at all. So if you think about the physiology of stomach aches and the physiology of headaches, they're mediated by all the things that are happening in the human body all at one time. So again, how you're doing emotionally always affects how you're doing physically because the brain and body are always connected. It's like, it's so strange to me that we think like you should have massive amounts of stress and anxiety like we all experienced during the pandemic, but your body should not have some sort of fallout from that. Mm. And specifically with stomach pain, abdominal pain, there's this thing called the enteric nervous system, which never gets talked about. And I don't know why. The enteric nervous system is this collection of nerves and chemicals connecting your brain to your gut. You've heard of serotonin, right? Apparently. Yeah, you people are always trying to slang serotonin. I know, it's yeah. true. What it's, do you mean, you people? Overpopularized. <laughs> yeah, and it's this neurochemical, this neurotransmitter that regulates a lot of things, including mood. Guess which part of the body has the most serotonin? I know I played this game with you before, but let's play it again. I'm going to play it again, and I yeah. am going to suspect that it's the gut, which also explains why <laughs> certain SSRIs have, have GI symptoms. That's right. Yeah. So what research shows is that 90% 90% of your serotonin wow. is actually in your gut. Wow. It's why you have a gut instinct or a gut uh, feeling uh-huh. or why like you watch the news and something makes you feel sick to your stomach. Oh, wow. It's pretty wild. Yeah. So your gut is, you know, part of your brain's emotion system, your body's emotion system too. So, and there's other things that happen when we're stressed out also that affect the gut. So fight or flight, mm. right? Mm. We, we, I, know, I know we've talked about some of these things, but what happens during mm. fight or flight, which is part of your anxiety response, is that your body tries to evacuate because it makes you lighter. So the first thing a bird does before it flies away... It sharts. It poops, right. And human bodies do that too. So a lot of the kids that I see who have intense stress and anxiety, have they feel nauseous mm. or they're feeling the urge to vomit or they are vomiting or they're having diarrhea mm. or they're having constipation, which is the opposite because your muscles get so tense and tight when you're stressed and anxious uh. that you can't go to the bathroom. So all of this to say, yes, stomach aches and headaches are really common when you're stressed and anxious. And if you have an underlying condition, and some people do, like there's a lot of underlying, like Crohn's disease or mm-hmm. you know, a migraine condition, stress and anxiety will amplify symptoms you already have. And that makes perfect sense. Why, why, how is this not just the baseline understanding of these things? But we don't, we don't talk. stigma. And, and I'll talk, oh, man. Stigma, oh, that's God. why. There's so much to talk about with this because Look, even if you, all right, let's let, because I think this feeds in and we're going to get into some other stuff too, but this feeds right into the social contagion of anxiety 
and off behavior and things like that. Yep. We are social creatures. Yep. We imprint. We have these mirror neurons. We do all these things. Kids are highly empathic until we beat it out of them. And the this idea that they exist in a vacuum outside of their circumstances. You mentioned wildfires and climate change, COVID, st- polarization, politics. Like these kids are super polarized now, you know? And um, this this generates a kind of a, 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 almost an expectation tone, almost like a nocebo effect, like the opposite of the placebo where they're having negative effects just because they're expecting them. And so they there was a piece in New York Times came out recently where there's a rash of Tourette's symptoms of tics in girls for whom Tourette's is unusually rare. It's usually boys. And they were wondering what's going on. They realized they look at TikTok, ironically named TikTok. TikTok which had a lot of like kids displaying various tics. And now girls are presenting to movement disorder clinics with tics. Right. What what is going on? Right. That's so apparently that's happened a couple of times in recent history. There have been these outbreaks mm. of kids, teenagers showing tick-like behaviors. And it didn't, it, it wasn't Tourette's, like it didn't meet for Tourette's, but they were tics. And tics by tics, I mean like an involuntary motor movement. Real or, physical thing. Or a vocalization. Right. But it wasn't determined to be Tourette's. And, and it was contagious. By that, I mean, it started with just a couple of kids and it spread and it became like dozens of kids. And this has happened at a couple of different schools over the last couple of years. So the question, indeed, what's going on? So I've read about a couple of these instances just out of morbid curiosity. Um, and, you know, people were like, oh, there's something in the water. You know, it's that there's some toxin in the environment. Um, people were like, oh, they're just faking it because they want attention. Because like the, there was a, there was some, in some cases there was like a lot of media and a lot of attention. Like, oh, they just want to be on TV. Right. Um, but what we actually know is, A, anxiety is absolutely 100% contagious. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Let's bookmark anxiety contagion. Yeah. Because I also want to be careful to say, like, we cannot prove um, that this outbreak is the direct result of anxiety. Correct. However, um, what what these groups of kids were ultimately diagnosed what, with was is this thing called conversion disorder, mm-hmm. which um, is also stigmatized or functional functional neurological neurological disorder disorder, as it's now called yes um what i like both of those names have a lot of stigma attached to them and i know you have thoughts on this but but what's interesting to me about the the name conversion disorder which is what it used to be called when i would try and explain that to parents because they would come to me like the they the kid had seen a hundred different physicians it's like for kids who are in wheelchairs and their legs are suddenly not working right and they're in a wheelchair and they're in my office and the, they've been died. They've gotten all the tests and all the tests are negative. And the doctors have said to the parents, your child has conversion disorder. The parents are like, are you crazy? What does that yeah. mean? What does it mean? Yeah. Right. And, and there's no real great way of explaining that other than to say the brain is not acting the way it's supposed to act, but your child isn't faking it. These symptoms are real. It's un, it's unconscious or subconscious, whatever you want to say. It's not on purpose. The kid's not manufacturing it. Um, and there's not a physiological thing wrong with your child. Like the brain is just doing something funky, but the brain isn't disordered. There's not an illness. So 
What we also know about functional neurological disease or syndrome and conversion disorder is that it is, it is often driven by emotional processes. And I want to say this carefully, which is why I'm saying this carefully, but um, we know that emotions manifest physically or somatically. There's no way around that. That is a known fact in science. That's why they call them feelings. Totally. Yeah. That's right. One of my kids said, oh, that's why they called venting because I need my, my, my feelings need a place to go. Mm-hmm. And I vent in all sorts of ways. Like sometimes I talk or I punch things or I, you know, mm-hmm. draw, but there's a lot of ways to vent and get your emotions out in a healthy way. Right. Um, but Emotions can come out in all sorts of ways, and sometimes emotions can convert into physical symptoms, like stomach aches, like headaches. So conversion, the way I sometimes try and explain it to parents is, some of the time with some of these things that we see called conversion disorder, what's happening is there's this emotional component. So a lot of negative emotions like stress and anxiety or depression and suicidality have converted into a physiological somatic thing. And it's not always a stomach ache or a headache. Sometimes it's um, a, seizure, a seizure, but it's not, it's a seizure, but it's not a seizure in the brain. Right. Will you say that as a physician? Like a pseudo seizure? Yes. yes. Will you explain that? Oh, there's so the much here. Take. There's so much here. Oh, I love it. Yeah. This is we have to talk about these things and they're so stigmatized. I know. Okay, all right. Okay, okay, so much. All right, listen. So everything you said needs to be repeated 14 different ways because yeah, it's you? so important. Do I'll it. try one different yeah. way. So emotion, another way of looking at it is energy in motion. So everything is a kind of form of energy. And just like physics says, energy can be converted to matter and back and forth to different forms. It's not created or destroyed. So what happens when an emotion arises or a a very strong, powerful emotional state? Well, it can either manifest as an emotion, it can pass through, you can experience it, or it can be converted into another form of energy, which we call matter, which is a dysfunctional limb, a feeling of half your body paralyzed after you've been vaccinated for a disease that you've read all online that these vaccines could be toxic. You are imprinted in a holistic way on a network of human beings that are influencing you back and forth. And when you see something happen, it generates a subconscious sort of uh, trigger that then an emotion can more likely manifest in a way that it wouldn't have manifested if you'd never been exposed to that because the mind is everything. It's all one thing. So conversion disorder, functional neurologic disorder, it's real. Like anyone who says, oh, it's just in your head, that's nonsense. That's stigma and nonsense. It is as real as anything in your body. And if you actually recognize it, then you have a better chance of actually treating, managing, overcoming it than if we deny it or say, oh no, and internally deny it too. No, 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 there's physically something wrong with me. Yeah, there is, but it's because of this bigger thing. That's right. Now, one thing I wanna say before I forget, I'll never forget this episode of MASH where Hawkeye Pierce, the main surgeon, had something wrong with him. And I don't remember what it was. Some physical thing happened. And they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't figure it out. And they ended up sending him to like the shrink. And it turned out it was some smell on a patient that had come in from the field that had triggered a smell of a swamp in him. And then it had this repressed memory of almost drowning as a chick is some trauma. And it had manifest physically. And by processing it, it actually resolved. And I saw that when I was like, you know, eight or something, and it, it stuck with me. I'm like, no, that's a real thing. I think that's true. I mean, it, I mean, what you watched was a TV show, but that is a real thing. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> By the like, way, those were actors. I'm sorry to tell you. 
I know. What? So sorry. No. Yeah, those are actors. No, but that is a real thing. Trauma manifests physically. And I know I've mentioned this book before. There's a book called The Body Keeps the body Score. Keeps the score. Which is all about how trauma lives in the body and manifests somatically. So I am not making this up. I am um, bringing the science to the people because it's just so critical. Like mm. for some reason in medicine, this conversation is never had. Like I was a kid with chronic stomach aches mm. and at no point did any doctor say, hey, are you socially anxious? The answer would have been yes. Like I was a library house. I hid behind my mom. I only wanted to be at home on the weekends. And it caused massive stomach aches. But, you know, you get scoped and prodded and poked and given medications. But at the end of the day, what the conversations we need to be having mm. with parents and the public is that, guess what? There are somatic components to all emotional states. So during this pediatric health crisis that we're talking about, kids are not just suffering emotionally. And by the way, they are suffering emotionally. They're suffering physically too. So mm. I just think it's it's sort of like a call to action in my mind. Like if you have a kid with a headache or a stomach ache, one of the things we should be thinking about, in addition to ruling out brain tumors and chronic, you know, illnesses is, you know, let's think about the stress and anxiety too. I had this amazing supervisor when I was a dorky undergrad at Brown. <laughs> She's wonderful. Her name was Marge Thompson. May she rest in peace. I loved that woman. Mm. She was amazing. But she always used to say, when you, and I know she didn't make this up. This is like a thing in medicine, right? When you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not, not zebras. zebras. Mm -hmm. Right. And what that means is, um, when you hear hoofbeats, this thing that you're going to commonly hear, maybe not here in the Bay Area, but, um, the first thing that should come to mind is the most likely explanation for the symptoms you're seeing, right? And given the day and age we're in, given all the stressors we've been talking about that teenagers have, which is just literally, again, being in middle school, having to deal with parents and siblings, having a toxic home environment potentially, thinking about the future and grades and college maybe one day in the future, or what am I going to be when I grow up? And identity, who do I want to be? Who do I not want to be? Sexuality, dating for the first time, divisive politics, wildfires, and COVID. And like, by the way, death of grandparents for kids is terrifying. Right, yeah. Totally. Died and like, alone in a hospital, isolated, didn't get to say goodbye. Right. But also being stuck at home, not being able to go to school, just... And I didn't even name 1,400 of the yeah. stressors that are on kids today. So so when we think about what's happening with kids, when we're thinking about horses and not zebras, what I mean by that is all of our kids are stressed, all of them. All of our kids have a certain degree of normal anxiety, and that is not mental illness. Mm. Anxiety during a pandemic is what I like to call a normal response to an abnormal situation. Everybody was feeling super anxious during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why? Because it's terrifying to live through a pandemic. You don't know who's going to live and who's going to die, including you. So anxiety during a pandemic is not mental illness. It is a normal response to a normal, an abnormal situation. So our kids are experiencing anxiety and depression because they've been isolated. They've been terrified. There's all this stuff going on. So if we're seeing headaches and stomach aches, thing one, I want to make sure we're thinking hey, I wonder if my kid is experiencing some anxiety and some stress and maybe some depression. Like that's thing one I always want parents to be thinking about because instead, like, yes, we want to rule out medical stuff, but think horses, not zebras. We always want to think of the thing that's most likely. It's most likely that your kid is dealing with some massive amounts of stress and anxiety in the last year and a half. Like no no joke about that. Um, but, but thing two is like, I always also want to make sure that we're looking at both the physical and the emotional when we're thinking about our kids and their wellness. Mm. 
and taking all of that into account. Because a lot of the kids that I see with headaches and stomach aches get better in treatment with me. They've mm. been on all the medications. Mm. They've seen all the specialists. But what they really needed was some cognitive behavioral therapy to help them cope with the massive amounts of stress and anxiety and depression that they're dealing with. That was a lot, right? <laughs> it was perfect. And, and your book actually goes through a lot of this in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy approaches for, say, pain management. Yeah. But this idea that we ought to cover this with insurance, we ought to put effort into this. Instead, I've heard this said, and there's a couple of things I definitely want to talk about. One is the female suicidality thing, and the second is uh, vaccine uh, functional neurologic disorder, um, but uh, that that aren't necessarily your wheelhouse necessarily. But I, I think it's interesting. Um, oh, what was I saying? I was talking about <laughs> before I went on that rabbit hole. I was th- thinking about you were just talking about. Oh, so in primary care, there is a saying that like forty to fifty percent of what we might see in primary care is not strictly physical in that sense, meaning. It's somebody with this particular like chronic situation or this or that, or even sometimes hypertension, things like that. We've talked about this. And it manifests physically, but it is has a root cause in uh, uh, an emotional or a traumatic, you know, we talk about adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. You talk about the body keeping the score. This is real. So let's just operate from the assumption that this is actually medicine and science because it is. Yeah. And then we can actually talk about it. Now, I get a lot of emails about vaccine stuff from people. And there was an article that came out recently where a guy had received a vaccine and subsequently had some really strange neurologic symptoms. Now, we always hear out in the wide open internet. In fact, if you go on these groups, there are people who say they've you know, been vaccine injured and so on. And some of them are absolutely legitimate. They've had complications of vaccine that do happen, right? Whether it's shoulder, nerve injury, different things like that. But some of the symptom complexes, you're like, this, is, this doesn't even seem, how could a vaccine do this, right? And then you dig in and you realize, wait. And so they actually ha- was a case report of a functional neurologic disorder from vaccine that manifest as sort of pins and needles, weakness, on the side of the vaccine and so on. And they kind of dug in and this this person had like read a lot of the literature on vaccines, was scared about the vaccines. And then I get a lot of emails from people who are like, you know, I went and got the vaccine despite my better judgment because I watched your show and I've been reading all these complications. And now like half of my face is numb and the half of my body is numb and and very similar patterns. And I will tell them, which is scary a little bit, right? I'll tell them, I'll go, your symptoms are real. I'm really sorry you're going through that. I, 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 I wish you didn't, you weren't experiencing this. There is this constellation of things that we see happen where um, whether you're unconsciously or consciously aware of other side effects that can happen, they can manifest as this kind of thing. And it's real physically, but it's not the way you think it is with the vaccine. And actually sometimes just understanding it and getting to the root of it might help to talk to your doctor about it. And to one, they actually will write back in a few weeks and say, oh, I got better. You know, thanks for fun. Thanks That's for sending awesome. me that article. That's great. It's kind of interesting. It doesn't always work that way. No, but it's great that you're. But it's a little scary because you you don't want to imply, oh, this is all in your head. No. You're having a real side effect. Right, right, right. right. But, right. It, but then you, you, you know, you look at like the VAERS database and these sort of vaccine screening databases. And you go, well, how much of this is people really at a high level of alertness? Now, this leads into my second question. This one's tough and I, I don't know the answer, but I like to ask questions that are a little concerning and disturbing. And this one is this, 
Could it be that part of the reason we're seeing increased suicidal ideation and hospitalization in kids, girls, whoever, is the social modeling of an increased acceptance of talking about these things, some social media influence of, man, I, you know, I was hospitalized for suicidality and uh, almost a, a destigmatization in a way that then does the same kind of imprinting. Do you like, think it's possible? Are you asking, has it culturally almost become like acceptable or cool? Correct. But not even that overt. It's more on the unconscious level, the way the tick contagion happened. Or in Hong Kong, this happened. Women were syncopizing. They were having, they were passing out because there was a report and it spread like wildfire. And it was the same thing. It wasn't just women, by the way. Um, and uh, uh, and it was young young people. Could there be a component that might explain why we're seeing less completed suicide? Maybe in general, that's getting better but more of the hospitalization. Yeah, so I think you are on to something. Mm. Do you remember a show called 13 Reasons Why? I do. I had real, real strong feelings about that yes, when it came many out did. as a psychologist. I was infuriated that these Hollywood people would put that out without consulting with psychologists. They did for like subsequent seasons, but they got so much heat. Like the fact that that show, by the way, as you can tell, I am all about destigmatizing everything and talking about suicide and talking about and normalizing suicidal thoughts in teenagers and helping teenagers get support for for the shit show of life that is being a teenager because it is really hard to be a teenager. And there are responsible and irresponsible ways of doing it. And they really glorified it in that really asinine show like it really made me angry so like for people who haven't seen it i do not recommend it for kids yeah. at all it's not a show that like raises awareness in a way that like helps the conversation in any capacity that is my strong and humble opinion uh. like they actually show a teenager completing suicide in her bathtub and i work with suicidal teenagers all the time and i have worked with teenagers who have attempted and i could not watch that scene I could not – like the mom finds her kid bloody in the bathtub. Like I highly recommend that families not have their children watch 13 Reasons Why, just to say. But to answer your question, I can see your shocked face, but I want to answer your question before we go down that rabbit hole. Um, what that show did do and, – and I read all the papers that came out from that because I was just so angry and also so curious. It did make it more common that girls in particular would – talk about suicide, attempt suicide. There were some copycat cases. Right. Um, yes. So um, I do think we have moved in our culture toward uh, suicide attempts maybe becoming more common in part because of things like 13 Reasons Why. And I want to say I am not blaming 13 Reasons Why for the increase that we're seeing now. I think the increase we're seeing now is more due to you know, social media and COVID and stressors and social isolation and kids being stuck at home and dysfunctional family systems. So I want to be clear. But I do think that the way we talk about it and the way kids think about it has changed because it now it's showing up in popular media in a popular way. So, uh, yeah, when <laughs> we did a show on 13 Reasons Why, I think a few years back, and my producer at the time, Tom Heineber, was like, hey, have you heard about this thing? And you know, and I'm always out of the loop. And he's like, yeah, apparently it's like showing this whole like suicide and this and that. And he goes, you should do a show about it because it's very controversial. Right. So he goes, well, let's watch, I, I need you to watch the the suicide 
that's depicted in the show, this girl. So I was like, oh yeah, I can handle that. And when you were talking about it just now, it reminded me, I sat through the whole thing. It was one of the, uh, look, I'm not easily traumatized. It was traumatic to watch. Like I've never seen anything like that. For us, and we're healthcare providers. We're healthcare providers. I was, I, w- I couldn't, because it was so realistic. I know. It was so realistic that you're like, oh, that's what that's like. That's never, like, you, and, and um, not only does it force you to face mortality, it forces you to think about your kids. It forces you to think about this self-harm this girl is doing because she's modeled whatever. I don't even know what the story was. And then the mother finds her and it was so horrible. And the question is, is that a good thing to go through that or is it then generating this thing? And I don't know the answer, but all I know is I wish I'd never seen it and I don't want anyone else to watch it. <laughs> so, so I'll just say this as yeah. a psychologist, there are really wonderful ways of talking to kids about suicide, normalizing that it's like okay to think about it, mm-hmm. talking about what to do. You know, it's totally okay to talk about other kids completing suicide. Like there's, there are like, I'm not trying to shove this in the closet right, right. or say that we Stigmatize shouldn't talk it about more. it, right. but you do not need to show a child taking her life in a bathtub in order. To me, that was just sensationalized. Yeah. Like, you know, how like um, Tarantino has the really extra gory scenes to garner attention. Yeah. That felt to me like a Hollywood version of a, let's show a dead kid in a tub and it will get a lot of attention yeah. and it worked and it did. But like. Screw them for using something so serious to get extra eyes on their show. Like, that's not how the conversation should go. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of great ways to talk to kids about mental health and depression and anxiety, and that's not the Mm -hmm. way to do it. So anyway, that that sort of sticks in my head. But you asked, yes, there has been a cultural shift about how we talk about suicide with kids, and they've become a little bit desensitized because millions, like the number of kids who watch 13 Reasons Why, I think the number at some point was like 21 million Uh, or something, I I don't even remember, around the world. Mm. So I think our kids have been desensitized a little bit. Mm. Um, Mm. But again, kids only end up in the hospital if they have intent and plan. Like, otherwise, the hospital will not take them. Yeah. So. Yeah, I I really struggle with that scene in terms of would it dissuade a child, you know? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I know I I was like, never. No. You know? And and it's, it's, you know, because we all have the fleeting thoughts, right? Like suicidal But But you see that and you go, oh, my God, that's what that's like. Like, uh," you know, and. Um, sure. I don't know. I don't know. But I would. I still wouldn't do it in the context of a show yeah. that's built for teenagers. That, that isn't. That isn't part of like a therapeutic intervention exactly. or some, you know, something. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It's just out in the wild. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm so, with you. Yeah. We could go down that rabbit hole. But I, can we talk about anxiety contagion? Because it's such a fascinating phenomenon. Yes. And in fact, I want to pitch the fact that you write for Psychology Today and wrote a wonderful piece on this that I will link to in the show notes on my website. So yes, please tell me about the contagion. I, I've spoken about it briefly on the show before in this form of social contagion. Like someone, a news anchor can sneeze on you from a thousand miles away and you can get anxious, right? But to tell me tell me about this. Great. So the way I like to think about this is like, we are in the middle of a COVID play. And there's lots of players in the COVID play. Fauci is playing in the COVID play. Hey, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I'm just, any excuse to pull out yeah, the Fauci? Yeah, yeah. No, totally. Flatten the curve. I was hoping you would do hey, that. Hey, yeah. I'm in the COVID play. Uh, Z-Dog is a player in the COVID play. How dare you? No. Spreading awareness and information. I'm not just a player. No. 
I'm the lead. Oh, sorry. Oh my okay. God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> my ego is so fragile and you just, you, t- you relegated me to just one and of the, the lead will be played by the lead Z-Dog in COVID. MD. Yes. Could you imagine that? Yeah. Anyway, so the, pl- the play. <laughs> I think the lead in the COVID play and don't get offended. And by the way, in the vaccine play, ah, the COVID vaccine play. That's a sordid one. Is something called anxiety contagion. Mm. Oh yeah. So let's talk about who anxiety contagion is. Oh, you personified. I'm this trying now. to decide. I'm like, should we make it male or female? Let's like not even go down that rabbit hole. So <laughs> make it non-binary. Make it a they. Okay. All right. So anxiety contagion is this known thing. Emotion contagion is a known thing, but anxiety contagion is quite literally what it sounds like. It's when someone around you is anxious and panicky, and you start feeling yeah. anxious and panicky, and you're like. Why am I feeling anxious and panicky? This is not my anxiety. That's that person's anxiety. But I feel it in my body as if it's mine. It's just like with when you're with a very depressed person, when you leave the room, your mood is actually suppressed. That's one of the diagnostic criteria. You can say, oh, man, I came out feeling depressed. That person has clearly got it. So these moods are contagious. So guess what? Human beings are social animals. We literally evolved to need each other to survive. When you have a social group, you have more things that you need to live. You have protection from predators. You're more likely to get food when you hunt and gather. And your young and your old will be taken care of if you have a social group. Being social is so critical to humans that our brains evolved a system to reward us for social behavior. In the presence of others, chemicals in your brain like serotonin and dopamine and endorphins – your brain's natural painkillers make you feel good. Those those neurochemicals spike. Mm. And in the absence of others, those neurochemicals plummet. So social isolation is actually the worst punishment you can give a human being. Makes sense. And you will feel worse when you are isolated and alone. And of course, that also affects your health, being with people or being isolated and alone. Your brain's also developed a system to keep you connected socially to the animals slash humans around you. And there's a system of in your brain called mirror neurons, which you mentioned earlier. Do you want to say what mirror neurons are? So mirror neurons are these uh, neural circuitries, if I'm understanding correctly, that actually are designed to mirror what another organism in your species is doing. So if you exactly. see a smile, you kind of automatically smile. And That's there's right. some controversy around mirror, neuro- mirror neurons, but in general, it seems pretty uh, pretty solid. Totally. And the research shows that if you are with someone in a room and, and you, the more like for me being a psychologist, I notice this because I know the research and I watch myself do it. So if someone's sitting in a particular way, mm. you will feel compelled to arrange your body in a way that mirrors their posture ah. because it creates like a synchronicity between the two of I'm you. Trying to, yeah. I'm trying to do it. <laughs> All right. I'm not good at it. No, no, you, you're good at it. <laughs> My mirror neurons are, are a little bit Hazy. Yeah. And it's why when someone smiles at you, you involuntarily feel compelled to smile back. You're yeah. not doing it consciously. Yeah. You, it's an empathic thing in your brain that keeps you connected to the other humans around you. Because again, social behavior keeps you alive. Mm. It's why people were so depressed during COVID when they were isolated. Because again, we are human animals and human animals need social behavior in order to thrive and survive. So... So a lot of us were depressed and anxious because we were removed from our very critical social group. Mm. So back to social, so back to anxiety contagion. When the social animals around you are panicking, so at the beginning of COVID, if everyone remembers, like I would look out my window and see people lining up for the grocery store 
standing like 10 feet apart. I'm not, this is not an exaggeration, mm. wearing rubber, rubber gloves up to their elbows and gas masks, like the real, like Bay, Bay apocalyptic. Area for life. Yeah, with the two things. With the things, you know, and like you look at that and it is impossible not to know, first of all, that that person is anxious. Yeah. And to not feel. Yeah. That feeling of, uh-huh. oh, sh- something's really wrong. Yeah. Like something's really wrong here. Yeah. So, so the anxiety contagion piece is like when people around you are panicking, it is actually adaptive mm. for you to panic too. And I want to say why. So back in the day when we're hunters, we're out on the plains, if there's a lion coming and you don't see it and everyone around you is panicking and you can hear them screaming and see their faces and they look panicky and they're running and you sit around and you're like, noony, noony, yeah. new. I wonder what it is. Your dinner. That you're yeah. going to be eaten. Yeah. If you catch their panic, if it's contagious and you catch it and you run too, you will not be dinner. Makes sense. So that's right. So anxiety contagion is adaptive. Mm. It can also become maladaptive. In the case of COVID, I humbly submit to everybody that what we have been seeing is a mass outbreak of anxiety contagion in a way that was absolutely maladaptive for most of us. Mm. Like we we were so isolated. People didn't leave their homes even when it became clear that you could see people outside with a mask on at a distance and chances of catching anything are really, 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 really abysmally low. You'd be fine. I still knew people who were inside, not going out, bleaching their groceries. They still exist. Yeah. And I don't want to like cast aspersion or stigmatize those people because anxiety is real and it hijacks your brain and it's miserable to live with. Yep. Absolute. And I like feel great compassion. And, and the anxiety we all experienced was triggered and maintained by the media. Like if you looked at the TV, it was like COVID-19 in big red and yellow letters. And it was the worst possible stories about people losing legs and like the death and destruction. And all of that stuff, of course, was real, but it was in a very small percent of people. But it was, it was pitched to us as if it was going to happen to you. So So anxiety contagion is adaptive because it can save your life. And what we saw during COVID was absolutely maladaptive anxiety contagion. It paralyzed people. It stopped us from being functional. It created a mass amount that I'm still treating of anxiety and depression in adults and kids. And I do think it's a huge contributor to the pediatric mental health crisis. You guys hear that? So this is a psychologist who's treating the fallout of our media's fear-mongering, the triggering to doom scroll and the social isolation and the economic devastation and the actual death and destruction of the the actual – we're not minimizing that. No, of course that's real. And so you throw it all together with humans who are innately empathic mirror neuroning creatures yep. and they are going to suffer. Absolutely. And that's what you're seeing. hundred percent. And probably yes. some of that is the kids showing up in the ER with oh, the suicidal. Definitely. And some of that is the elders who are declining because they've been isolated, not because they got COVID, but yeah. because they've been isolated. That's right. So we see that nursing home isolation, no visitors, yep. you know, I think, you know, and Vinay and I talked on the show the other day about one of the great crimes we did in it with good intent was isolating people at the end of life. It's the survivors that are going to suffer. You know, dad died alone. Grandpa died alone. We couldn't even see him. They had us on FaceTime. How ridiculous is that? And uh, when we had the ability to keep people safe from being infected in those rooms, but but we just didn't. So there are there's there's lots to learn about. But so so here's a question: What 
for the for the for the social contagion, what are the calls to action on that piece of it? Like, what should we be doing? Yeah, yeah. Anxiety. There's a lot of things we can do about anxiety contagion. First of all, mm. I, I think sometimes it just happens to you, and you forget that there are things you can do about it. Mm. So I think we've all become, or at least during COVID, we were all sort of addicted to the news to tell us what was going on. So what I recommend as far as news amplifying anxiety contagion is if you're someone who wants to read the news and it's nice to know what's going on in the world, limit yourself to once a day for like 10 minutes. Yeah. So we call it going on a media diet. I was just going to say, yeah. And part one of the media diet is you're only, you decide it's like whatever. And I wouldn't do it before bed because it's going to mess with your sleep to read because the news is stressful. So so you decide, okay, I'm going to read the stuff that's going on in the world, all the disasters, all the deaths, all the sad, awful things happening. And I'm going to do it for 10 minutes at 1030 in the morning. And then I'm done for the day. That's it. It's not like you're so, so, so thing one is limiting consumption of media. Thing two is limiting consumption of social media. Hello, except for me. Except for you. They can watch me. Totally. Right. That's not social media. That's no. alternative media. Totally. And Correct. you're not like a doomsayer. So yes. you're you're off the hook. Some would disagree, but yes. <laughs> sure. I, I think you're generally <laughs> off the hook. But there's this thing called doom scrolling that people do, especially before bed, which <laughs> is scrolling your phone, the social media, for all the bad news and all the things. And guess what? That's bad for sleep and it's bad for your mental health. And by the way, if it's bad for your mental health... It's bad for your physical health. That's the conclusion of today's episode, everybody. <laughs> it's bad for your mental health. It's bad for your physical health. Same thing. Same, same. Right. Well, so, so, so one of the few compliments I ever receive uh, is, is, hey, you. I was super anxious during this pandemic. I was very uh, unhappy. The, I was watching a lot of media. I was listening to a lot of people on social media. I wouldn't leave my house. I watched you and you seemed to be relatively rational and balanced about risk and so on and fairly optimistic overall. And you basically saved my life. Like I get a lot of these emails. Wow. And it made me think this is a concern here. Like anxiety contagion oh, yeah. is so real oh, yeah. that if a clown like me can make a dent in it, it yeah. means that it's so big it's ubiquitous. that it's easy. It's low it's hanging ubiquitous. fruit, right? Totally. All you have to do is not be insane, right. meaning as a broadcaster, right. to not trigger more of yeah. it. So let's talk about more of the things you can do. Yeah, please. There's more. Yeah. yeah. I think we all have- Never f- mentioned Delta Plus. Right. <laughs> Trigger, trigger warning. Yeah, variant, variant, right. So I think we all have friends and colleagues who are down this anxiety contagion rabbit hole and who are posting a lot of inflammatory, scary things. Mm. I have muted those people. Nice. Yeah. You, well can, done. you can too. I mute everybody on Twitter. So, yeah. so boundaries are a thing. Yes. And boundaries are important for your own mental health and protecting it. So if you have friends who are very inflammatory and anxious, because we know anxiety contagion is real, you don't want to read their stuff on social media. Should you still call them and see how they're doing? Sure, if you want to. But if you want to mute them across the board, you're allowed to do that too because you're trying to protect your own mental health. So that's an, another thing. Uh, so don't feel bad about that. Right? No, boundaries are real. You're not critical. responsible for their no. mental health. No, they need to go get a therapist. Yours. Exactly. That is correct. Right. So that is the next thing, by the way. Uh, one of my goals in life is to destigmatize therapy. Why? I am under the impression that everybody hundred percent of human beings would benefit from having someone to talk to. Imagine that. Who's not a family member and not a friend. I have a friend who once said to me, you know, people are always bragging about how many miles they biked on Strava and how many hours they did yoga and how many miles they can run. 
But can you imagine what the world would be like if we sat down with each other and we were like, man, I worked on my family shit for two hours today. <laughs> and I'm like, so much right. of a better person. Like if we worked on our mental health yeah. and talked about that as much as we work on our physical health and talk about that, what a different, what world, a different world this would be. So, so I just want to say – Going to a therapist doesn't mean you're mentally ill. It means you're healthy mm. and you want to get healthier. It's just like going to the gym. Like I go to the gym. You go to the gym. It doesn't mean there's something broken with your body. You're going to the gym because you want your body to be strong and healthy. It's the same with going to therapy. You want your brain and your mind to be strong and healthy too. So yeah. that's my humble pitch. And there's lots of ways of finding therapists. I am for anxiety – the number one ace in the whole treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety. It's what I do. It's helped me. I think it's really brilliant. And you can Google CBT therapist near me and find a therapist. And you have to find someone you like, by the way. That's like thing number one. And the way I pitch this is like, if you would go to the store and try on four pairs of shoes before buying a pair. Why would you try therapist? Doesn't your brain deserve the same thing? <laughs> like you get to try on four therapists and see which one is best for your brain. And then you return them for free if you get them from Zappos. Zappos, sponsor of this show. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, oh my God. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So a couple other tips. Definitely exercise because what yeah. stress and anxiety does, it spikes your stress hormones like cortisol. It spikes adrenaline. And one of, one of the great ways to eat that up is by exercising. So you can go outside for walks in the sun. I happen to love that one. Mm. Go out into nature. There's all this research on nature helping to regulate mood and stress. So go outside, exercise, lift weights. Yes. Where do substances come into this? So people mm. who are drinking too much, smoking, using a lot of weed, whatever it is. Right. How do you talk about that? How, how indeed. With anxiety. How indeed. Uh, Self-medicating is real. Mm -hmm. And it is absolutely normal and natural to self-medicate during times of emotional distress. You mm. want to feel better. And sometimes we don't always have the tools at our fingertips to feel better. Mm. I remember reading that during the pandemic, the alcohol sales were like 700% higher or something insane. Yeah. Went through the roof. Yeah. They went through the roof. So all of us were trying to cope. So- mm. No shame in this game, like totally, but ongoing and an ongoing way, substances are not actually going to treat anxiety. Substances are not a treatment. It is a short-term Band-Aid for an underlying problem. And in fact, substance use can aggravate and amplify underlying anxiety and depression because of a whole host of reasons, like chemical changes that can occur. And also, if you lean on substances, the substances then start becoming the problem too. Yeah. Yeah. It, may, it makes sense. And so these are our kind of calls to actions for social or the social contagion of anxiety. I'd love to come back to the calls to actions for mental health on kids, because if we're in this crisis, and again, how, you know, I hate the term crisis because what the media uses for everything, and it always increases my level of anxiety when I think something's a crisis. But this is, this is something where we can say the current situation right, with mental illness and young kids. How, what are our calls to action? Because it seems like, you know, there are ways to manage this better than we have. A hundred percent, yes, couldn't agree more. So I think first things first is people need to know what anxiety and depression look like in kids and suicidality also. And I think that's not abundantly clear to most people. Mm. So anxiety shows up in kids in a lot of different ways. You will hear kids express worried thoughts. Worried thoughts are often, but not always, a sign that there's some anxiety and stress there, uh. right? Worry is in the anxiety family. So kids will express anxious thoughts um, that comes in all forms. Anxious thoughts about school or about peers or about COVID or about 
you know, their bodies or about going to school. So when kids express worried thoughts, we want to be thinking, is there an anxious process going on here? There's more to it than just that. Mm. Um, Anxiety in kids also looks like not being able to sit still. So when you see kids fidgeting Mm. and tapping their feet and they can't, they need fidget, the gadgets. Yeah, the fidget spinners. The fidget spinners. Starting to think about my own kids here. Yeah. So just what that means is they have, and I don't want to pathologize anybody, but they have adrenaline in their body and it needs a place to go. Adrenaline makes you feel, you know, we've all felt that feeling Mm -hmm. where you feel like it's the fight or flight. Like you have to go, you have to move. So so when kids come into my office and they cannot hold still, it is not ADHD when it's accompanied by worried thoughts. Mm. That is a sign of stress and anxiety. And I'm not saying it's at a level where you need to like panic and medicate your child. It's mm. just a moment of awareness. Like my kid's pretty stressed out right now. Mm. And I just want to say again, every kid is stressed out right now. Just to normalize that, like this is a really stressful time of life. They're mm. like finally going back to school, but there's still COVID and there's maybe vaccines for kids and maybe not. And what there's so much stress out there. So, mm-hmm. so worried thoughts, verbalizing worried thoughts, behavior that shows you the tapping of the feet, the f- adults, by the way, adults do this too. Adults yeah. do this mm-hmm. too. But when I see that right for me right away, I'm like, that's a red flag that a kid's anxious. You will see sometimes changes in appetite. So Kids who are anxious are sometimes less hungry. Back to that thing where emotions manifest physically, kids will sometimes lose their appetite mm. or they'll get stomach aches or they'll get headaches. So you'll, you'll see somatic manifestations of anxiety too. Um, and sometimes functioning gets impaired in kids who are really anxious. And by that, I mean, they're not able to go to school. They can't concentrate. They're not doing their homework. Their grades are suffering. So um, at a functional or they're avoiding social activities. Avoidance is a hallmark of anxiety in kids mm. and adults too. So yeah. if someone's avoiding something, it, chances are very high that they're stressed or anxious about it. And I see that a lot with like schoolwork, like kids who have a lot of academic anxiety, they're just avoiding schoolwork. It makes them so anxious and it can get to the point where they're avoiding school or refusing to go to school. Uh, yeah. Gets that bad. Yeah. So, so, so the end, these are, these are things that parents have to be cognizant of yeah. because a lot of times it's like, oh yeah, the kids just, of course, yeah they're, yeah, they're blathering about their worries. It's like, no, this kid is very anxious about a specific thing yeah. and it may require, oh, so what do you do? Do you sit with them? What, how do you manage? The, the parent, so yeah. the parent piece, I, I just have literally written into my contract that in order for me to help your child, you need to come see me so that I can help you help your child. Oh, yeah. And the trick for me is always delivering it in language that's not stigmatizing, which right. is very hard. Right. Um, Why are you such a terrible parent? You're making yeah. this kid so anxious. You're so anxious. And now the kid's so anxious. You're such a high achiever. You want your kid to be a high achiever. The kid's freaking out. And this is just my own self-blame. <laughs> no, but anxiety contagion is real. And like just to normalize again, adults are also really anxious and stressed right now, too. Right. And the kids model. And and the kids absorb the kids absorb it because they can't help it. It's like putting a kid in a bathtub and saying, "Don't feel the temperature of the water." Mm. That's what it's like mm. being in you know a home. You just feel everybody else's. It's like an emotion soup, and you once, can't help it. Once again, we're these empathic creatures. Yeah. So exactly. by the way, I, I, I and we'll get back to like bigger picture issues with this. But uh, when you talk about empathy, it's interesting because I'm about to go on the six day meditation retreat, and one of the th- and I'm not done this before. I meditate alone and so on and and my friend Angela who's running the retreat was saying there's something that happens when you get some people together that are all have the same intention, that are all having the same energy. They're there to do this thing and you're silent. So you're not even talking, but you're there with them. 
and it is a transformative experience. And so I'm, I'll report back when I come back, but I do think there is this energetic connection between humans that we evolved to do, like you said. That makes sense And so I'll see if that's a potentiating effect on meditative practice, it'd be interesting. I bet it would be. I mean, if anxiety contagion is real, why is there calm contagion? Why wouldn't wokeness contagion? <laughs> Or whatever they, whatever yeah. you call that, yeah, yeah. Totally. yeah. So, be, be like, you know, do we need more access to telehealth? Do we need more school-based mental health service? Like, what are the answers here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, we definitely want to destigmatize therapy for kids. And one of the reasons I'm pitching therapy for adults is because kids are going to think that it's normal to go yeah. talk to someone just like it's normal to get on a bike yeah. if parents are doing it too. Mm. Um, and totally destigmatizing it. I mean, you can even call therapists like an anxiety coach if you want and oh. just, yeah, just to destigmatize. And so the way I say it is like, if it's okay to go to a soccer coach, it is totally okay to go to an anxiety coach because living with anxiety is really hard. And this person's going to have some tips and tools for you. So you can just destigmatize uh, it that yeah, way. Yeah, that's great. But we want to get kids into therapy with trained professionals. And again, cognitive behavioral therapy for kids is a thing and it's out there and it's available. And what I like about CBT is that it gives kids coping tools and mm. coping strategies. Mm. And by that, I mean, a lot of kids don't know, like once they identify that they're having this emotion, mm. well, what do I do with it? Same with depression. Like I know I'm depressed. And by the way, signs of depression in kids, just to say, Change in sleep, change in appetite. Oftentimes it's eating more or less, but also sleeping more mm. or less, but usually more with depression. Um, you'll see kids sometimes crying. You'll see um, anhedonia, so things that gave them pleasure before are not giving them pleasure now. There's a lack of motivation in kids with depression. They will report being sad. You'll see them being tearful. Um, they will isolate kids with depression sometimes. Mm -hmm. They will talk about feeling hopeless mm. or helpless. Um, th there's like less thoughts of the future. And the times when I get really worried, like more toward the suicidality stuff is kids who give their belongings away and start oh. talking about death. Yes. Oh. And that's, you know, we want to call 911 if that's happening. Wow. And I don't just mean like sharing clothes with their girlfriends. No, giving stuff away. Yeah. Like they're getting My goodness. Away. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know because I think parents can be a little more vigilant. Um, what about trauma treatment? You know, like if families, if there's been a traumatic event, do you intervene early with kids before it becomes this festering ace that damages their adulthood? Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah, I brought like, I, I there's things that I want to remember to say, so I keep like looking at my little cheat sheet. But yeah. so I love cheat sheets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So just because there's like so much to cover and it's so hard to remember it all. Yeah. But yeah, so with if a child has endured a trauma, chances are very high that that's going to impact the development of depression and anxiety later in life. And by the way, also chronic pain and chronic illness. Mm. So we definitely want to get any kids who've experienced trauma into therapy. But back to the thing about the coping strategies, yeah, yeah, just yeah, to yeah. say. Yeah, the cognitive behavioral. Yes. Uh, yeah. This is for kids with anxiety and or depression. Doesn't matter. And adults too. One really amazing thing about learning coping strategies is you feel empowered to deal with a thing you're dealing with. So there's lots of different coping strategies. So um, do you know your, out of curiosity, do you know your coping strategies? Like when you get really stressed out? <laughs> well, uh, I've been more aware of what I try to do. So sometimes I will deny as a coping strategy. Sometimes I will project and blame as a coping yeah. strategy. Yeah. These are maladaptive coping yeah, yeah. strategies. Sometimes I will stop and become aware of my inner state 
as a objective witness. And that's been new through meditation. So yeah, that sounds I'll, like a mindfulness practice. It, it is. It's more like a, a mindfulness, like what is the emotion? Where do I feel it? And this happened just the other day. I, I think I was talking to somebody about this where um, somebody had said something really nasty online and it hit a little close to home. So I was sitting watching a movie and I was like, oh, is this true? And I started getting anxiety. Like you feel it like the butterflies, that whole enteric nervous system. And, and I was like, oh man, this is gonna ruin this movie because I'm gonna fester on this and I'm gonna wanna get online and kind of see more follow-up comments, go on Twitter. And then I was like, wait, well, what is this? What is this really? This is this sensation of energy here. I know when this happens, it's triggering something in me that's insecure about it. Let me just let it, let me just let it feel, let me feel what it is. And as that happens, it vibrates out, you feel it, you go, this is what it is. And then it just dissipates. And then I've just decided I'm gonna let that go for now because it's not something I need to think about. And it works, it works for me. So that's my most recent coping strategy. Love it. Yeah, so coping strategies vary from person to person. And as you deftfully, deftly, deftly, deftitiously, deftitiously pointed out, Big words, big words. <laughs> Made up words, really. There's like there's healthy ways of going about coping and unhealthy ways. So a lot of people, especially when they're depressed, will isolate and stop engaging in activities and mm. stop seeing friends. And we see that in kids. They just sort of like stop doing all the things. Mm. And the treatment is the opposite. So we have to help kids get back to life and start connecting socially and go outside and move their bodies and um but but when I think of coping, I think of finding a therapist. I think of talking to friends and family. I think of exercise because there's all those brain chemicals that get wonky when we're anxious and depressed. Mm. You can regulate that actually with exercise. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean, my mood improves rapidly with regular exercise. Yeah, And also sunlight, by the way. Like yeah. we know that sunlight is medicine for human beings. We're diurnal. Like we are – creatures of the sunlight. So if you're stuck inside all day, every day for weeks on end, your mood is actually going to crash. You need to go outside and get sunlight. Um, Of course, there's like nutritional components. Also, we want to make sure kids are eating healthy. A lot of kids that I see who are really depressed are literally like home in bed eating potato chips all day. Mm. And of course, that's not useful for their health either. What about screens? Oh, oh God. Can we talk about screens? Please. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have strong Like you said earlier, research shows that Massive amounts of screen time, especially with these like social media apps, are actually really bad for kids Mm. and more so for girls than for boys, or at least that's what's coming out. Right. Um, Girls are are maybe more overt about how they're being impacted and maybe ask for help more. I'm not sure what the discrepancy is there. Right, right, right. But we know that Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all the apps, like during the pandemic, our kids were on the screens 24 7. Yeah. And back to the pediatric mental health crisis, absolutely that contributed, like being on a screen all day, every day, consuming all of this like, you know, doom laden, like panic inducing, anxiety contagion. And then the Zoom fatigue of having to make eye contact and having to listen to a teacher blather on in two dimensions with minimal, minimal gestures. And, and, right. you know, and then you put it in person and everyone's wearing masks and you can't really see facial expressions. There's a lot of stress it, on Super, yeah. super stressful. So limiting screen time in kids, parents say, but it's the only thing that distracts her. It's mm. the only thing that gives her pleasure. And I'm like, but that's my red flag. It's like, mm. we need to find other activities for her that will give her pleasure. Like, what can we do? Can we uh, get her going for a walk outside with a friend? Mm. Can we schedule like a movie night with someone, even if it's outdoors in a backyard, depending on how COVID comfortable we are and how vaccinated everybody is? Like, are there ways of safely engaging kids in activities in ways that are safe and healthy? Like, can they play a soccer game or a basketball game? Outside? Like, what are things that we can reintroduce into their lives at 
you know, at the space that we're in now with this crazy COVID play that's been going on. And there mm. are things that we can do. Mm. So we have to make sure kids are reconnected socially, that they're engaged physically, that they're going outside. And parents have to disconnect kids from their screens. Yeah. So I will just say that I have parents all the time who say things to me like, no, I want my child to decide that they've had enough and that they're going to, I want them to self-limit. And what I have been saying that's to like parents- like cocaine saying, oh, just don't snort one line. I mean, yeah. Screens are addictive. There yeah. Billions of dollars have been put into those screens to make sure they're addictive. Yes. And it is unfair to ask a teenager whose prefrontal cortex is not yet fully developed yep. to not get addicted to a thing that's addictive. That's right. It is ju- it's unfair to the child. Try it yourself. And all of us are, are addicts too. Yeah, like, yeah. So if it's not if if we can't self-regulate, how are you going to ask a seventeen-year-old to self-regulate? Like I see seventeen-year-olds literally who are in bed for fourteen hours on screens. Yeah. I am not exaggerating. Oh, I Video games, it. just all the things, and it is so deeply unhealthy for these kids for forty million reasons. But it, yes, it is contributing to the mental health crisis a hundred percent. So my friend Angela, who's been on the show talking about awakening and spiritual stuff. He sent me a clip from uh, Mr. Rogers, uh, Fred Rogers in 1969 in front of Congress. So young Fred Rogers testifying to try to get funding for his show, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. And it was fascinating to watch because it could have been pulled from right now, but substitute social media screens with television. And what Fred Rogers was saying is, yeah, you know, most of what kids are seeing on television is is violent cartoons that teach them that when you're angry, you bonk someone on the head or you hit them with a bat or you do this or that. And I'm telling kids, what do you feel when you're angry? Like, do you squeeze clay? Let's talk about it. Let's have, you know, he's being Mr. Rogers. And what was crazy is like the cynical Senator who was grilling him, like goes, you just gave me goosebumps. Like, what did you just say? And he keeps going and he's like, I'll give you however much money you want. Really? Yeah, it was crazy. It was the same thing. It was like rehumanizing, reconnecting, dealing with kids' mental internal states. And this was 1969, Fred Rogers, a national treasure, rest in peace. And um, I was like, it's the same thing now, totally. but we don't have a Fred Rogers. No. Yeah. But what we do have is concerned parents who love their children, uh-huh. who are struggling to set boundaries on screen time. So the way I suggest that it be done is parents should powwow with each other and sometimes with the kid and think of some healthy activities that you want the kid to engage in or that the child wants to engage in. Mm. Like whatever, it doesn't matter. Let's call it playing basketball, you know, once a day for 15 minutes. And the screen rule becomes you get an hour of screen time If you do the 15 minutes of basketball outside. So the screens then become the reward Uh, for the healthy behaviors. And it works 100% of the time if you are consistent, if both parents are on the same page, and if it becomes just the family rule. That's it. And you have to be willing to take away the screen if the child doesn't engage in the healthy behavior. So, so for kids that we're worried about, like kids with chronic pain, kids with illness, kids who are anxious, kids who are depressed or expressing suicidality, definitely, definitely, definitely do not give them screens all day, every day. Absolutely. No, no, no. And also no, like it's not healthy for them. It's exacerbating the problem. They're not learning how to cope with all the things that are happening. And structure is actually really great for kids who are struggling. Structure and boundaries make kids feel safe and calm and contained. So for kids with anxiety in particular, setting boundaries actually makes them feel 
less panicky. It's like if you imagine that life is this boundless, endless, dark ocean, when you give a kid a boundary, what you're saying is, here's the shallow end, and mom and I or dad and I or whatever are standing here, and we're watching you. And if you swim out of the safe zone, we're watching you and we're going to see you. And when kids test boundaries, which they do all the time, what they're really asking you is, you said you were watching. Uh, are, are you still standing there? Because uh, I, I swam outside the line and you didn't do anything. Kids want you to enforce the shallow end. They want you to, and it makes them feel safer. I I could not agree more. As the parent of a of a headstrong child, the older one, we actually had to learn this, that the boundaries with compassionate enforcement were necessary. So she would push and we would you know, wishy-washy, one parent saying one thing, other, and it was a, it was almost like a sense of oh you, you don't even care enough to enforce this right it, that's the unconscious manifestation of it so what we i'll tell you what we do with our kids just cuz it was interesting cuz it worked and and the kids love it which was not self same obvious we have screen free sunday where the ki- we have limits on screens on regular days. None of them have social media. Wow. They're they're thirteen and ten, That's but impressive. they're able to watch YouTube. Yeah, and yeah. we put parental uh, time limits on all their devices, so they after a certain screen time, it turns off. But on Sunday, we say you no, know, nobody gets screens. And what we do though is we say, okay, we're going to do all this stuff as a family, and they look forward to it. And in fact, we wanted to reward one of them for something they'd done. We go, okay, we don't have to do Screen Free Sunday this this weekend. She goes, no, I like Screen Free Sunday. It's crazy because we know we're all going to be together. But but by the end of the day, the rule is if they do all their chores, like they fold their laundry, clean their room, do this and that, then they can have like an hour of screens. And then we do nightly family watching where we all watch some so anime nice. or something together. What a great – And it has so worked. Great. It has. Now, we're not Bravo. perfect. They have problems with other screens. Course. but but it, it, it it took conscious effort on – and two parents right. colluding to do this because yeah. if one of us cheats or does something, that's right. it's easy to cheat. That's right. Hey, you know what? I, I'm busy right now. I don't have time to spend with you. Just take here, take my phone and play with it for sure, like sure, five sure, minutes, sure, sure. two hours later. Yeah. 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 But, and I don't want to say, I don't want to like trivialize this and say it's easy. Like it's actually very hard yeah. because all of our kids are addicts. Like everyone's addicted to their screens. All of us. It's very, very hard to say. So as a family, we've decided that we're going to have some screen boundaries or some screen rules or some screen limits or whatever. We're all going to be doing this together. So there are ways of doing it, and it will help kids who are struggling. Absolutely, it will. And you do need the alternatives for, like you said, the things that they can do that aren't. Because otherwise, That's they're right. like, well, I'm just bored. I'm just That's sitting That's right. Right. Have them bake brownies for you. I yeah. mean, like, there's a lot of things you can do. That's right. <laughs> That's why I, I always say, this is probably not the right answer for kids, but I always tell adults, I'm like, man, boredom is optional because if you really are, if you're an advanced in your practice of present moment awareness, in the present moment is fascination and awe with anything. You could stare at your pants for three hours and be really intrigued by what no. this- No, <laughs> definitely not. You need to wake up, girl. You're not enlightened enough. But Listen, the... some of us maybe can stare at our pants for three hours, but some of us cannot. Have you seen my pants? I defer They're to you. They're fascinating. Okay, maybe later. Speaking of which, I just referred to my pants. The last time you and I talked, and by the way, this is the third time you've been on the show. And the yeah. reason I love having you back, is first of all, you know all your shit. Second of all, I love what you do. This is just a pro, pro observation here in interviews. We can spin off the rails and talk about tangential stories and silly stuff. And then you will always go, so back to this and tie it right back to what we were talking about, which is a huge gift. Clearly you're some kind of therapist. 
No, I just, I'm so passionate about this stuff that I just, I always just want to get the word out there. Like all these kids are suffering and, and adults too during COVID, like there's been so much suffering and I feel like this is such a great platform to help people. That's, that's why. Every time you come on, I get all these messages, man, can you please just like do a regular show with her? Oh, She's really? Amazing. Yeah. They love that's so nice. what I you're bringing to the I have massive table. public speaking anxiety. So that's like shocking to me every time I'm like, can't everyone see how nervous I am? <laughs> Can anyone see? I'm asking you. Like, and it's true because we've talked about it off camera yeah. too. I mean, you get very nervous, and the truth is, I would never. In a way, you you control this conversation in a way that very few guests actually are able to do. Are you just saying this because I called you out on your pants? Yes. Okay. You're uh, trying to def- number next. deflect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you asked about my COVID mechanisms. Project onto others. Trying Talk to control. about something else. That's right. But, but so okay. So that brings us back to this thing. So the last one we did, we you made a you made a joke about. It wasn't a joke, but it was an observation about like, there's like these groups online that talk about hacking orgasms, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I said, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm experiential with organ. I made some like snide comment about it. We have a- I don't even a, remember. Yeah, we don't even remember, right? Yeah. Well, I had like the head of like a major company's diversity and inclusion office email me and say, you know, I just want to put this on your radar that you did what most guys do in a in a- sexually dominant way where you thought it was okay to make sexually inappropriate comments with a female guest that you never would have made with a male guest. And a lot of guys do this. They think it's okay. And then they complain if the woman didn't laugh or didn't play along that they just don't have a sense of humor and this kind of thing. And what was interesting was, so instead of immediately getting defensive, which is my standard practice, I was like, okay, so could this be true? This is interesting. Could this actually be true? And I had to think about it. And I'm like, let me think about Rachel. Let me think about what we talked about. I'm like, wow, no, actually, because I'm so connected to you and we kind of have a banter and a rapport, it felt natural to do that in a way that I might not actually do with some male guests because I don't have the same rapport. And so I told her, I said, well, this is my interpretation of it, but I will ask Rachel. And I'm also gonna introspect, could it be true? Because I have unconscious bias. I'm curious what you think about this because as a woman in medicine, there's real terrible shit that goes on. Totally. And I feel like we have to be aware of it, but are we creating microaggressions that then minimize what actually is going on in the world? Can we do this as a teaser for a future episode? Yes. Because there's, I feel like there's so much to say That's about a it. Whole but show. I do. It yeah. is. But I, I'll say one thing, um, which is that. We are friends and we do have a rapport. Um, and I think we're both intellectual nerds. And I think what we were talking about there was actually there, there's a group that was hacking or got like it was an actual, it was a health movement yeah. and in the Bay Area. It was a mindfulness health movement. It turned out to be a cult. And that's why I thought it was fascinating. <laughs> but we were actually talking about health and wellness. Right, like, right. There was no, there wasn't even a flavor in my mind. Like, and yes, the sexual harassment is real and ubiquitous. But, but when two friends are bantering and talking about sexual things, at, at least for me, that's not how that landed even remotely. Right. And of course, I have had that experience in medicine with many men in positions of power, but that has never happened here. Just to be clear. Isn't it interesting? We'll do a show on that. I think we should talk, pick that because because I have seen things in medicine purported onto women by yeah. men that yeah. have been just shockingly horrible and yeah. obvious yeah. and accepted. Yeah. And so then when it's interesting, so when this person turned that lens on myself, yeah. immediately I was like, Oh my God, I don't want to be like 
such and such and so and so and so and such. And there is an unconscious, you know, I, I do hang out with a lot of guys. It's just like one of those things that I just, yeah. Well, I thank do. you for being thoughtful about it. Well, I don't know. And then I wonder, you know, am I missing something? So let's do a show. I'll, yeah. You can be my therapist. Oh, whoa. On the mm. show. That's probably a boundary violation, right? I just wouldn't know how to do that. Well, neither would I. I don't know how to have a therapist because I haven't had one. What? I know. I'm an idiot. Wait, for real? For real. My mom's no. a psychiatrist, but that doesn't uh, count. Oh, well, maybe it's loaded, but like, you'd be great. You would love it. I bet I would. With a good person, you would no, love it. No, I bet it. I would. With you a, would and love like you it. said, it'd have to be the right person. Because if it's a person that I, would, I, I'm not vibing you would, with. You would get, you would, you're already there. Like you're prime. You've done all the work. You would love it. You would like go mm. to places you didn't even know. Man. Oh, you would like open up all these little boxes and you'd go home and think about stuff. Man. It would be so good. You would love it. I'll tell you what, let me do this meditation retreat. I'll come back and then I will consider the therapy piece. Because Great. you have do to it. do all those things. Great. They're all different lines of, of support you. growth. Thank you. Great. Well, hopefully I don't uh, back out of it because I'm a real wuss. I'll just keep talking you into it. <laughs> so let me see if there's, oh, there's a crisis text line we should mention. Yeah. Yeah. On. So you text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741, 741-741 if you're That's, having, is that right? For acute suicidality, meaning plan and intent. If you're feeling suicidal, you're really worried you're going to do it. You can't. You text the crisis hotline. And I'm going to put that in the show notes. Great. Um, yeah, I think we covered. I think so too. Boy, we really, boy, you were awesome. That was rad. I, it's rad is your word too. I know, it's because I'm a child of the 80s. So am I. I know, that's why we get along. I told you I wanted to do a parody of Overkill by Men at Work about, um, you know, Fauci appears and fades away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh no, I, you know, it was actually, it was like, Night, no, day after oh, day, boy. Fauci appears. <laughs> na, 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 na. Night after night, CNN sows the fear. Surge appears and fades away. Anyways. Do your fans get really excited when you sing normally? No, they hate it. They oh. say I have no, a terrible voice and oh. they're right. But okay. half of them are excited because they want to see the train wreck that is the parody. Well, I haven't done a parody. Thank you for talking to me about all oh, this it's stuff such a today. It was really Come on, dude. You trek all the way out here across the bay. You 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 deal with all of the anxiety of having to speak. Oh, dude! And dude, do you deal with it ever? I, look at it. I'm going to ask directly to the audience, guys. Leave a comment oh, if you no, think no. Doctor Zoffness, <laughs> no. the other Doctor Z, showed any no. overt anxiety. Oh God, that makes me so anxious. It should. <laughs> my goal is to try to trigger you into a full blown panic attack. Sweating. That's right. My yeah, exactly. That's great. Thank and you. And this is from a, f a game recognized game. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I was young, I had so much uncontrolled physical anxiety. Yeah, I would yeah. sweat through my pits constantly. Anytime I go to class, I'd have tachycardia. I would feel it. I had PVCs, these premature ventricular contractions when yeah. I was in medical school. Yeah. And you know, you talk one last thing because this is, God, I have to get this therapist to help me. Um, when I was in medical school, I found the social contagion of anxiety, and I'm only now thinking about it in this way, was so profound because it was UCSF. So it's the cream of the California crop of the most neurotic, ego-driven, competitive-minded, yet insecure people on the planet. Every single one of them had imposter syndrome. Oh we were all stress cases, had huge self-expectations. And so you're around them all the time and then there comes a final exam that you're studying for and you have to be in a lab with them at night and you're surrounded and the energy of that anxiety and that stress and that competition and all of that would infuse. And it got to the point where I was, and I never, I, you know, I never sought help or anything, but 
it was so debilitating that I would come to class, I would have to wear an undershirt because I knew that my pits would mm. just be. And so one time I remember they were doing, we had to learn physical exam on ourselves. And so you take your shirt off and you sit there and I was the one who was the, the victim and there were six of them like all gonna listen to heart and do EKG and all this. And I was so sweaty and anxious and I was tachycardic. And they were like, dude, you're, and they checked my blood pressure. It was like 160 over something. And I was like, what is going on? I'm like, there's a contagion of fear here. Like I feel it. And uh, you were like, my anxiety is manifesting somatically. I did not say that. I was so shamed. I was yeah, just like, oh my God, this is like, I'm just a worthless, you know. And, and now I look back and I'm like, of course, of course. course. So why couldn't I have had that destigmatization and understanding at the time? It would have saved me so much suffering because you know how, right. I, how I manifest the, the suffering? Avoidance. Oh. The way I avoid is I stop going to class. Right. That's so, the cycle of anxiety. Yeah. Exactly I just wouldn't go to class. I would cram the night before. Yeah. And that way I'd avoid my colleagues. Yeah. Except for my good friends. And yeah. That's so anyway, exactly the cycle. I thought I'd end on a, a downer like that. <laughs> I mean, but look where you are now and look what you've done with that anxiety. You've spiraled it into this like amazing platform where you help people who are struggling. We make merch called Science the Crap Out of It. That's what I do. I help people who are struggling not to have merch and now they're going to have no. Thank you for spreading the word about anxiety. Thank you for being such a lovely teacher and human being. Guys, blessings. Links to Dr. Z's book, The Other Dr. Z, The Better Dr. Z's Offness, um, is going to be in the show notes along with a link to her piece on the anxiety contagion in psychology today. Um, do me a favor, just share this episode. Leave comments about your own struggles if you've had them, because sometimes just typing it out is a big deal. Um, and we will have Dr. Z back to talk about gender issues in medicine and the struggle and other things, including chronic pain again, because we can never talk enough about that. No, it's true. Um, talk about a crisis, yeah. a real crisis. Yep. And uh, thanks again. Thanks for having me. And we are out. Peace. Brad, bye. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I want to hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.